could be looking at the strongest storm that has ever made landfall in northwest Florida in the Florida Panhandle. Hurricane Michael could be one of the worst hurricanes to ever strike the Big Bend and Panhandle region of Florida. Deadly storm surge could extend miles inland in some places. So what exactly does that look like? Well, when we get up to three feet of surge flooding, at that point, cars begin to float. And by the time it gets up to six feet, you're talking about life-threatening storm surge flooding. We thought it was going to be like any other hurricane where you lock the doors, you go into the shelter, you wait till the hurricane passes, you come out, you do your assessment of the damage, you make a list of what needs to be repaired, you go home and sleep in your bed, and then you come back the next day and you start, you know, start getting things repaired. This one was a little bit different. Uh, when we shut the doors, we started realizing that it was going to be a little bit more than just a, a regular storm. I was at a friend's house <laughs> that we decided to go to, to his place. This is the first hurricane he'd been through, so we kind of rode it out together at his place. He was only six miles away. We're, we're starting to see a little bit more damage uh, with more debris coming, more debris coming down in the water here on Water Street. Power lines are now down. While we were in the shelter, we, don't, we didn't really know what was going on outside and how much damage was being done. Sitting here, you don't know what's going on. You think, oh, well, it just hit Tyndall. Downtown is probably fine. On October 10th, 2018, Hurricane Michael made landfall in the Florida Panhandle. 24 hours earlier, its wind speed and destructive potential earned it a Category 3 rating. A powerful storm to be sure, but Nothing out of the ordinary in a typical hurricane season. But overnight, as it traveled north through the Gulf of Mexico, that average storm exploded into a monster. By the time it made landfall, with the storm's eyewall passing directly over Tyndall Air Force Base, it was a Category 5 with wind gusts at 162 miles per hour, and the only thing those who hadn't already evacuated could do was shelter in place. Mr. Brian Stahl, Tyndall Air Force Base's Deputy Base Civil Engineer, explained how the Tyndall rideout team didn't even have time to really realize the damage that had taken place in the local community because they were preoccupied with surviving in the aftermath of the destruction at Tyndall. Five days after the storm was the first time I was able to leave and go check on my house. Um, and it was just the devastation that you saw when you left the base, that places that you thought would never change, would never be damaged, were just destroyed. Mr. Mark Shackley, Air Force Civil Engineer Center Security Forces Integration Program Manager, described emerging from that friend's home after the storm into an entire community that was transformed into miles of disorienting heaps of rubble. It was kind of shocking. The one thing that I still remember from all that was because there was so much devastation, people couldn't find their houses without a GPS because all the landmarks were gone. The house you used to know was gone. Trees were gone. Street signs were gone. I think early on we looked at it and went, this, is, this isn't going to be fixed t tomorrow. This isn't going to be fixed next month. This is going to be several years of, of repairs. 
I was probably one of the more fortunate ones. There are a lot of other people in this area who they lost everything. They lost their entire homes. At the same time, I think the community has benefited from the same things that Tyndall's benefiting from you know, after the storm, that it gave opportunities to come back and do things that you never would have been able to do. Mr. Eddins, didn't you and the Airman Mag team visit Tyndall after Hurricane Michael destroyed the base? Yeah, we did. It was probably six or seven months afterwards, midsummer 2019. We got to see firsthand all of the devastation Stahl and Shackley were talking about. Hangars with no roofs, support buildings flattened. All the housing was replaced with tents by civil engineers. At that point in 2019, the Reconstruction Program Office was still prioritizing, planning, and building budgets. So now, after the pandemic had slowed everything to a crawl, the PMO is back in business, acquiring innovative technology and breaking ground on facilities. This devastating natural disaster that nearly wiped out an entire base has opened the door for the Air Force to build the base of the future. Hold on there, Mr. Eddins. That feels like that's supposed to be my line. I'm usually the one bringing innovative ideas to you. Well, just think of it as, I don't know, an innovative approach to our podcast. So buckle up, Sergeant Robinson. We're about to get debriefed. They are waiting to debrief you. Get some chow and head to the debrief. Go get some chow and head to the debrief. Get to the debrief. Get some chow and head 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 to the debrief. So where were we? Okay, Tyndall's infrastructure was completely devastated by Hurricane Michael. Buildings that weren't completely destroyed were severely compromised, so the first thing the Air Force had to decide was whether Tyndall was worth the money it would cost to rebuild it or not. The last time something like this happened was when, I guess, Schriever was built? Um, I think that was the last one that was, that was built from the ground up. I'm not even sure where that is, but that's a huge decision. Military installations have a huge economic impact in the towns in which they reside. So I guess my question is, when the shot callers are weighing the impacts of these decisions, is it ultimately determined by the cost or the strategic importance of the installation? Well, it, honestly, it's a bit of both. So Mr. Michael Dwyer, the Deputy Chief of the Natural Disaster Recovery Office within the Air Force Civil Engineer Center, spoke extensively about this during his interview. And he said that when they did the calculations, the cost to rebuild Tyndall was pretty close to the cost of closing Tyndall. It was a tremendous opportunity to reconstruct from the ground up, not only an installation that we knew needed to withstand a direct hit from a Category 5 hurricane, but also to build an installation that would be the Air Force first 21st century installation. So we call it the installation of the future. Um, I can tell you from my personal experience that we had to calculate it both ways. We had to calculate it to rebuild it, and then another team at the time calculated a cost to close it. And believe it or not, the two were almost the same. There's a room in the Pentagon 
um, up on the fifth floor called the engine room. And that's where a lot of the budget slicing and dicing and higher level analysis occurs, particularly when the secretary has a difficult problem set and needs solid answers quickly. Tyndall has some unique capabilities. In particular, uh, the drones that are launched off the drone runway do not enter Federal Aviation Administration controlled airspace before going out into the Gulf Range. What this means is that the drones can be armed. They can conduct the missions that uh, the weapons evaluation group requires them to do, which as I recall, uh, when, our, when our fighters rotate through here, it's for the purpose of firing live missiles at drones. So these particular targeting drones can take right off the drone runway, never enter FAA controlled airspace, and are ready and available to conduct that critical readiness mission for our fighter fleet. And to expand on that a little bit, the Gulf Range is a national treasure for military readiness and training. It, it's just massive. It runs um, up from, I believe, near Eglin, uh, all the way down to Key West. And it is, uh, it is just a massive area to conduct not only um, um, training for our fighter fleet, but large combined operations. Okay, so I understand why the decision to reopen Tyndall was made considering the opportunities for training it provides because of its proximity to the Gulf of Mexico. But it seems like we can't have a conversation about Tyndall without someone saying installation of the future. I'm not sure I completely understand what that means or even looks like. So when we're talking about rebuilding Tyndall, we're not talking about a rebuild so much as a reimagining. As Mr. Dwyer alluded to when he said reconstructing the base from the ground up, they weren't looking to build the base they had, but to build the base they need in the future. The base they'll need in the future. So this sounds like it's along the same lines of what Chief Bass talks about when she mentions the airmen of 2030. That the way we mentor and educate airmen now has to change so we'll have the leaders we need for the future fight. But does that mean replacing airmen with technology? No, it's not about replacing airmen with technology. It's about leveraging technology to enable Tyndall airmen and civilians to perform their missions more efficiently and effectively. It's also about the opportunity to build an installation that is more mission efficient and effective. Mr. Lowell Usri, the Integration Branch Chief of the Natural Disaster Recovery Program Management Office, talked about this when we interviewed him. When we got the decision to rebuild, uh, the Secretary of the Air Force gave us uh, essentially three mandates. The first one was you have to keep doing your existing mission, like you have to keep doing the weapons evaluation and the training missions that are occurring here. You're going to bed down F-35 squadrons and I want you to rebuild as the installation of the future. So the Air Force specifically had been talking about installation of the future concepts for, for quite some time. And I think that the enterprise had put a lot of good thought leadership uh, and ideas into that discussion, but you never really had uh, an opportunity to crystallize and take all of those ideas and execute them on a large scale. And so Tyndall, uh, given the fact that it was basically a clean slate, uh, we had the opportunity to do that here, uh, given the, the scope and, and, and size of the, of the damage that was done. 
And then just the sheer amount of facilities that were going to be reconstructed, the amount of money that was going to be spent here to, uh, to, re to, to rebuild, really drove a forcing function for us to get super creative and try uh, some outside the box ideas, some things that really were um, taking the, the Air Force Enterprise, uh, which had, had gone through some piecemeal improvements over time, over the past decades, and really leapfrog into uh, what might be on par with commercial best practice or industry standards. Wait, hold on a sec. He mentioned something about piecemeal funding. How does that fit into the larger scope of things? So, Sergeant, how many Air Force bases have you been stationed? I was stationed at Moody Air Force Base from 2015 to 2019. And now you're at DMA. So when you were at Moody, what was that flight line like? The flight line was interesting because a lot of different maintenance units or functions were on opposite ends of the flight line which made covering an exercise really inconvenient because you had to drive to each one in order to be anywhere on time. And that's true for a lot of installations. The Air Force's contracting and acquisition process usually involves companies making bids on construction contracts for an individual facility. A requirement for a specific building that will house a specific mission is created. So once it's authorized, the bidding begins, and it can be quite some time before a contract is awarded and even longer before ground is broken. So because those installation facilities are almost always individually contracted and constructed, multiple companies are building individual facilities where they can fit at a particular point in time, not necessarily where they need to be. So this caused a lot of logistical issues for me as a photographer when there was an exercise on the flight line, but can't airmen with the proper clearance just hop in a flight line authorized vehicle and get where they need to be? Sure, but what if they didn't have to? What if the space on the flight line was optimized so that all the support functions and even the pilots were within walkable distance to the aircraft? Well, for starters, and cut down on the amount of vehicles each maintenance unit needs to haul parts on the flight line, or even the vehicles that flying squadrons use to cart pilots out to the jets before taking off. Now you're getting it. When Tyndall was destroyed, it gave the Air Force an opportunity to reimagine what the flight line could look like, not only physically, but even in the way contracts are awarded and funded for buildings like hangars and support buildings, and the fact that they could all be built in close relation to one another to become a more efficient operation. So that kind of goes back to what we mentioned earlier. In order to basically fix the logistical problems created by having to fund an entire flight line one building at a time, a natural disaster would have to heavily impact every installation's flight line. If we're strictly talking about physical location of facilities, it's going to take creativity and planning and probably some facility repurposing to make every installation's flight line walkable. Well, if this kind of mobility won't be readily available for every installation, then this is great for Tyndall, but not great for everywhere else. Is there anything from this process that is actually applicable or can help at other installations? Absolutely. The agile way that Tyndall is acquiring innovative technologies to make the installation smart and cost efficient are largely replicatable across not just the Air Force, but across the entire joint force. Mr. Dwyer and Mr. Usry also talked about use of other transactional authorities, and how this will change the way new innovative technology moves across the enterprise. More traditional forms of acquisition can take multiple years of developing requirements, bidding, 
prototyping competitions and testing. This method has its place, such as procuring a new bomber or missile system. But for smaller systems, in an era of rapid technological change, by the time that traditional process is completed, the end product may be hopelessly outdated. If the Air Force is going to invest in a technology that doesn't pan out or ends up being unique to just one MAGCOM or installation or doesn't quite trickle across the entire Air Force enterprise, better to know that sooner rather than later. OTAs can make that happen. And we had to figure out how to rebuild an installation from the ground up. We hadn't done that in a very long time. And of course, anytime a natural disaster happens or another, any kind of major event to our built infrastructure, the, the first question that our partners in Congress have is, well, hey, how, how much is this gonna cost? And well, we had never estimated how to rebuild an entire base from the ground up in, like you mentioned, over 50 years. So um, we had to give Secretary Wilson at the time, you know, some defendable information. You know, what is it going to take to rebuild Tyndall that she would be comfortable taking that to members and committees and so forth in advocating for those resources? So in about 30 days, we figured out how to estimate the cost defendably to reconstruct all of Tyndall. Um, I won't get into too many weedy details, but think about an Excel spreadsheet on steroids. So about 46 pages of calculations to get to initial $3 billion cost estimate. Um, it was in a very unusual situation uh, that the professional staff members asked us for our math. They wanted the actual Excel file so they could check the calculations and look at how we calculated the, uh, the initial estimate. Were you biting your, biting your fingernails when you, after you hit send going, please, please, please? <laughs> well, I was because it was asking for $3 billion of Milcon. And to give you perspective, that particular budget year we were working on the president's budget submission only had $2.7 in Milcon in it. So it was more than an entire Air Force uh, annual appropriation just for one installation. Because Tyndall was starting from the ground up, we were able to do a brand new what's called master plan to instead of having those buildings on the opposite sides of the base where you had available land, we were able to group light things together. And that's the power of being able to do military construction on a large scale. So typically uh, a military construction project, which your average installation only has one every couple years. Um, we're doing 44 of them here at Tyndall. So just to give you an idea of the scale. And typically um, a military construction project is what's called line item appropriated. So I want to build a hangar at let's say Warner Robins. And Congress says, yes, you may build a $100 million hangar, 100,000 square feet at Warner Robins Air Force Base, Georgia. And that's your line item authorization and your line item appropriation. Since it's line item appropriated, let's say the cost of steel goes up and your bid is 110 million and not the 100 million that you were appropriated at. Well, that's now called 
and above threshold reprogramming. And those are fancy words to basically say, we have to go back to Congress and ask permission to take money from somewhere else in the MILCON program, the military construction program, and source that $10 million to award the bid to build that hangar in Warner Robins. Well, that can take, that can take five to seven months to get that approved and back and get the contract awarded. Um, and sometimes contractors have to extend their bid in order to accommodate that. And of course, they charge accordingly for it. Th this program has none of that. It has basically one big lump sum of money. And the ability to cut that process down from five to seven months to just a few weeks. So if we have a high bid, we can go and put in a very simple request that only goes to the comptroller at OSD. It doesn't even leave the Pentagon. And we can move money around a lot faster to be responsive to our bid climate. And we can award MILCONs more quickly. And it's very easy to still provide Congress with an accounting of where we spent the money and why. One of the real significant hurdles to uh, implementation of technology, deployment of the latest and greatest ideas is the acquisition planning process that, that, we, that we have to go through in the federal government. There's a reason it's there. It's super important. We, we need to comply with, you know, with the laws. We need to comply with the regulations. However, the bureaucracy of that process has put us in a place where it's difficult to compete with some of our near-peer competitors, uh, you know, and, and we're, we're having a really difficult time uh, accelerating change the way that we need to in order to continue to be competitive. This is where the power of not being restricted to one or two huge defense contractors in a traditional contracting and acquisition paradigm really pays dividends. The flexibility to forego a tedious and lengthy requirement writing process and allowing multiple companies to simply address a need or a problem statement and then pitch a solution. When we started here at Tyndall um, and started looking at what kinds of things could be and should be incorporated into the rebuild, uh, we cast our net pretty far and wide. We did a lot of market research out just in uh, industry, academia. Uh, we uh, solicited input and advice from all of the other subject matter experts and thought leaders in the space within the Air Force and also within the Army uh, and brought them to meetings where we kind of collectively normalized around some ideas and some solutions. And so one of the natural uh, partnerships that we formed was with AFWorks. And so we actually went through two sets of challenges with AFWorks. We went through a base of the future challenge, which was really focused more around the facilities here at Tyndall. Um, and then the flight line of the future challenge was really focused more around uh, kind of the way aircraft maintainers, the way uh, the logisticians think that uh, a flight line could be revolutionized for you know, the, next, the next iteration, the, the, the flight line of the future. Okay, let me make sure I'm tracking. So in addition to working directly with industry partners, they also worked with end users to make sure the solution they're creating isn't just a one-trick pony? 
Yeah, and that partnership enables them to embrace the fact that they don't know what they don't know in terms of possible solutions to their known problems. This allowed the PMO to get input from a myriad of innovative young tech companies that may have a completely different perspective from preconceived notions of what the solution should be. In the AFWorks challenge process, uh, the way it works is, is they conduct some rather extensive market research with all of, the, all of those different entities. So you've got academia, industry, military, civilians, all in the same melting pot. And they can actually sit down, we, we could sit down and actually think through what we think the pain points are, what the friction is with respect to technology, and then take all of that input and distill it into challenge statements or problem statements. And so those problem statements then go out to industry. At that point, anyone can bid. Anyone can put in a, um, an idea. And the idea is fairly simple in that really the barrier for entrance is a white paper, uh, maybe a, a slide deck, uh, but it makes it much easier for the small businesses out there that have really great ideas that are on the forefront of whatever it is that they're, you know, the technology space that they're working in. And they're able to bring those to the solution set in a very uh, straightforward fashion. And then there's a, an, an exhaustive vetting process where you've got Air Force leaders that go through all of those white papers and evaluate them based on the merits and how well they responded to the challenge that was posed. And so as we did this for Base of the Future, uh, we developed a commercial solutions opening, which we could take all of the successful finalists, in other words, the folks that had been down-selected and deemed uh, qualified uh, against the challenge statements that we put out, and then they were brought into the CSO uh, and, and essentially awarded a spot that then anybody in the Air Force could go out to the CSO and reach directly to those, uh, to those companies. And that uh, CSO was really a prototype uh, process that was put in place by Dr. Roper uh, and General Holt, and so they're the ones that really spearheaded that. So it's great that we've got an opportunity to, um, you know, to capitalize on that really great way to reach out to smaller businesses and bring their technology to the forefront. And so things like the CSO help us find a way to accelerate change, to, to, to implement and deploy these technologies faster while still complying with all of the acquisition regulations that are out there and doing all of the appropriate acquisition planning that's necessary. So as we uh, looked at those technologies and thought about how we could implement them, what kind of contract uh, would be possible after we had them on the CSO, uh, we considered FAR-based contracts, federal acquisition uh, regulation-based contracts, and then some non-FAR-based contracts. Now the next bit is where the power of non-FAR-based transactions really shines. How so? Well, in a traditional transaction, you go through the entire requirements and contracting process before you ever see a prototype, which could be multiples of years. By then, the original requirements may have already changed. But with a non-FAR transaction, such as an OTA, the supplier provides a minimum viable product that can be iterated upon without a new contract or alterations to the original requirements. So I think I understand what you're saying, but just so we make sure I'm clear, what is iterating on a minimum viable product? 
Okay, well, you walk around with a pile of constantly iterated products in your pocket every day. Uh, I'm pretty sure I would notice that. Well, actually, most of the time it's designed so that you don't notice. These are the apps that are on your phone and the phone operating software itself. If you bought an app when it was first released, it was probably version 1.0. If you've had that app for a while now, it's probably more like version 4.2.6. You don't really notice it because the updates are happening in the background. Those companies take the consumer feedback about their product, whether it's a bug that was found or a suggested improvement, and update their app periodically to better serve that customer. That is what iterating on a minimum viable product is. Okay, I, I understand that as far as phones go, but how does iterating on a minimum viable product help Tyndall and the Air Force acquire technologies that will solve our problems faster? So instead of going through that lengthy traditional acquisition process and being handed a final product that may have issues or deficiencies that need to be worked around, you rapidly get an initial prototype to work with, a version 1.0. You can analyze how it fits in your workflow, collect data, and then suggest alterations or improvements to the vendor. Then they address your needs and ship you version 1.1, and then the process repeats. You get your initial product within months, weeks, sometimes even days, and begin to tailor it to your actual work environment. And as a result, you get a fully realized solution faster that has addressed even sometimes unforeseen hurdles and needs, so you can get to full-scale production and delivery much faster. What that does is allows you to bring a, uh, a, a company in with the technology and prototype it in a way um, that if you like the prototype, if the prototype uh, yields the thing that you were hopeful that it would yield, then you can go into full-scale production and you can implement it at other locations. You can implement it more wide-scale. And so in this case, uh, IROC, the Installation Resilience Operations Center, and our digital twin were both awarded as other transaction agreements. So the value there is, is that if we decide that we like the product, um, then in theory, we have a much more straightforward path to uh, implementation and deployment at other bases. And so that, you know, reduced the, the barrier to entry for the initial award. And by the way, those awards are primarily done to non-traditional defense contractors, NDTCs, and that helps us, our acquisition community, reach out to companies that wouldn't normally be you know be doing business with the federal government which is you know again where a lot of these uh, you know the, the incubation of a lot of these really great ideas is, is with these non-traditional defense contractors so let me ask you sergeant robinson what have all total force airmen been tasked to do well the air force answer is definitely accelerate change or lose that's correct OTAs optimize the acquisition of innovative technology by having an option to implement full-scale production of a successful product built into the realm of possibilities at the initial stage. Historically, the Air Force has too many times put money into a platform that ends up not doing the very thing they needed it to do, or is outdated by the time it's delivered, or they actually get something that works, but it's not within the budget to roll it out to the rest of the force. On one hand, it's kind of mind-blowing that this is a new and innovative process since it's been happening on phones all this time. 
And on the other hand, I can kind of see where the old way of doing business is valuable. So theoretically, through an AFWORKS challenge, airmen could present a problem statement for a need in their squadron or in their work center, and a small business can create products to try and address those problems? Not theoretically. This is happening right now. You can Google AFWERX challenge, and the site lays out how you can participate both as an airman and a business or an academic institution. You know, Mr. Eddins, I might have to let you take the reins on talking about innovation more often. I've never heard you speak so passionately. Well, I like your generation's new innovative stuff. Just keep it off my lawn. And he's back. The Debrief is a production of Airman Magazine, located at Defense Media Activity Headquarters, Fort Meade, Maryland. You can see more of Airman Magazine's content at airmanmagazine.af.mil or search for us on Divids, Facebook, Instagram, iTunes, and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and consider yourself briefed.